Alright, it's time to do another podcast. It's uh, 10.45pm and I'm back in London, uh, having spent 11 days on the road in Montreal, Portland, and San Francisco. It's been really crazy. Uh, yesterday I got up, had a breakfast with a friend who's working on a book about blogging and did like an hour-long interview, and then went and did a podcast with Leah Laporte and the This Week in Tech Gang. And then I got on an airplane, and who should be sitting next to me but Ben Laurie, a friend of mine from uh, the UK who um, owns the data center in the old fallout shelter called The Bunker. Um, ben was very gracious while I pulled out my laptop and wrote another 3,000 words of After the Siege. Uh, as you may recall, this is the story that I work on on long-haul flights. Got about six hours sleep, landed, um, went home, filled in my immigration paperwork, took it to the solicitor's office, went to the bank, went to the post office, came back home in time to do a phoner, uh, then um, ran out again, picked up my PowerBook from the repair shop, came home, uh, started answering email, and I've only just finished. It's now 10.46, and I've been on the ground for, I guess, about 10 hours, and I've only just sort of finished running all the errands and doing all the chores that accumulated while I was away. Uh, but tomorrow's another day, and I'll be back in the office and maybe getting some actual productive work done. Before that all starts, I'm going to read a little bit more of After the Siege. So when we left, you know, back up a little. Um, when we left, the wizard had just been saying to Anna, Oh, Anna, you cynic, the wizard said. There are many, many safe places. The world is full of them. They are the exception, not the rule. Isn't that why you've come here? We're not talking about why I came here, Anna said. She nodded back at Valentine and made a little sco scooting hand gesture at her. Valentine couldn't decide if she liked Anna, though Anna was very pretty. I need help for my family, she said. And why would I give help, the wizard said. He was still smiling, but that face of his, the face that looked like he'd been wounded and never quite healed, it was set in an expression that scared her a little. His eyes glittered in the low light of the swooping sitting room. She found that she had slumped against the sofa, and now it had her in its soft embrace. Because you helped me before, she said. I see, the wizard said. So you assume that because I've been generous, very, very generous to you once before, that I'd be generous again? You repay my favor with a request for another one? Valentine shook her head. No. I will find a way to repay it, she said. I can work for you. I don't need any ditches dug around here, thank you. Somewhere in that flat, a voice, a door opened and shut. She heard muffled voices, lots of them. The flat was full of people somewhere. I can do lots of kinds of work, she said. She attempted a smile. She didn't know what she was offering him, but she knew that she was too young to be offering it, and besides, with zombieism, you shouldn't do that sort of thing. She would be safe, though, and careful, so that he would live to help her family. And across past her in a flash, and then she smacked the wizard a crack across his face hard enough to rock his head back. His cheek glowed with the print of her open hand. Don't you toy with this little girl, she said. You see how desperate she is? Don't you toy with her. She whirled on Valentine, who stood her ground even though she wanted to shrink away. If she was old enough to offer herself to the wizard, she was old enough to stand her ground before this beautiful, well-fed blonde woman. And you, Anna said, you aren't a fool, I can tell, so don't act a fool. There are a thousand ways to survive that don't involve lying on your back, and you must know them or you wouldn't have survived this long. Be smart or be gone. I won't watch you make a tragedy of yourself. Anna, what do you know about survival, the wizard said. He had one hand to his cheek, and he was looking, and he was giving her the same glittering look that he'd given to Valentine a moment before. Just don't play with her, Anna said. Help her or get rid of her, but don't play with her. Go and see to the others, Anushla, the wizard said. 
I will negotiate in the best of faith with our friend here and call you in to review the terms of our deal when it's all done, all right? Anna looked toward the corridor where the voices were coming from, and then back to the wizard, and then to Valentine. Be smart, girl, she said. The wizard brought her a plate of goose liver dumplings smothered in white gravy, and then took a bite out of a big toasted corned beef sandwich that oozed brown mustard. Right, he said, no playing. If you want to work for me, there are jobs that need doing. Have you ever seen stage magic performed, the kind with tuxedos and white doves? She nodded slowly. Before the war, she said. You know how the magician always has a supply of lovely assistants on hand? She nodded again. They'd worn flattering, t- th- uh, uh, tight-fitting calf-high trousers, cutaway coats, tummy-revealing crop tops, and feathered confections for hats. Everyone who does magic has an assistant or two. I'm the wizard, and I do the best magic of all, and so I have need of more assistants than most. I have an army of assistants, and they help me out, and I help them out. I'm leaving in five days, she said. The kind of favor I had in mind from you was the kind of favor that you could perform the day after tomorrow. And you'd take care of my family? I would do that, he said. I always take care of my assistants' families. Do we have an agreement? She stuck out her hand, and they shook. Eat your dumplings, he said and then we'll get you some things to take home to your family. Two days after the wizard agreed to take care of Valentine's family, the fever had become her constant companion, so omnipresent that she hardly noticed it, though it made her walk like an old woman, and she sometimes had trouble focusing her eyes. She arose that morning and feasted on brown rolls with hard crusts, small citrus cakes, green beef tea, porridge with currants and blueberry concentrate and sweet condensed milk, and a chocolate bun to top it all off. Trover ate even more than she did, licking up the crumbs. She saw him hide two of the jackfruits under his shirt and nod his satisfaction. He had learned something about surviving then. Her mother had not questioned the food, nor the clothes, nor her daughter's absence in the night. But oh, she had given Valentine a look when she came through the door carrying all her parcels, a look that said, Not my daughter any more. Not a look that refused what she bore, but a look that refused her. Valentine didn't bother trying to explain. She knew what her mother suspected, and it was better in some ways than the truth. Her mother drank the real coffee reverently, with three sugars and thick, no-refrigeration cream. She ate sardines on toast, green beef tea, and a heap of fluffy scrambled eggs with minced herring. Then she put on her uniform and took up her gun and went out the door without a look back at Valentine. By the end of the week, she won't have to worry about me, Valentine thought. The fever made her finger shake, but still she drank her hot chocolate. Trover knew his own way to the crèche, and so Valentine went forth to earn her family's fortune. The wizard had given her a small stack of little electric marbles, and had told her to get them planted in no fewer than three hundred locations at the front, and in the places where the fighting was likely to move. They were spy eyes, the kind of things that she and her friends had exchanged to keep in one another's rooms before the war, so they could sneak midnight conversations in perfect encrypted secrecy. Sorry, I picked up a bit of a sniffle. If I'm caught, she said, you'll be shot, he said. You must be. Oh, my computer is frozen. Just one second. You'll be shot, he said. You must be. The alternative is that you'll lead them back to me. And if you do that, the whole game is up. Your friends' lives, my life, your life, the life of all my assistants and friends will be forfeit. It will be terrible. They will destroy this place. They will destroy your home, too. She didn't report for her digging. That was okay. Lots of people didn't show up to dig on the days when they were feeling too weak to hold a shovel. She wouldn't be missed. 
She had the fastest shoes that the wizard could print for her on her feet, though she'd carefully covered them in grime and dirt so they wouldn't stand out. And she'd taken an inhaler along that would make her faster still. He'd warned her to keep eating after she took the inhaler, or she'd starve to death before the day was out. The pockets on both her thighs, both thighs of her jumpsuit were stuffed with butterballs wrapped around sugared kidneys and livers, stuff that would sustain her no matter how many puffs she took. No one challenged her on her way to the front. There were some her age who fought, and many more who served those who fought, bringing forward ammunition, digging new trenches right at the front. The pay for this was better than the pay for digging the trenches uh, for that she'd gotten for digging in the safe trenches. She, bought, she brought a shovel for camouflage. The first round of trenches were familiar, the same kind she'd been digging in for months now. She even saw some of the diggers that she'd dug alongside of, nodding to them, though her heart was thumping. You will be shot, she thought, and she palmed an electronic eye and stuck it to the wall of the trench. She moved forward and forward, closer to the fighting. It had always been a dull, distant rattle, the fighting, never quite gone, but not always there, either. Instinctively, she kept her distance from it, always moving away from it. Today, she moved toward it, and her blood sang. Over one, one trench over, there came the dread zzz sound of a trench buster, and she threw herself down. There were anti-busters in the trenches, too, but they didn't always work. The trench busters were mostly up around the front, but they sometimes came back to the diggers, and they had killed one crew she knew of. There were screams for the next trench, then a sound like a bag of gravel being poured out. That was the anti-buster she knew, and the trench buster soared out overhead of her and detonated in the sky, mortally confused by the counter-logic in the anti-buster. She realized that she had peed herself. Just a little, just a few drops that must have escaped when she gave her involuntary shriek. She planted her hands in the frozen dirt of the trench floor and got to her knees. That was when she saw the fingertip shriveled and frozen, lying just a few inches from her. It had been cleanly severed. She had seen so much death, but the fingertip cut off and left there to dry out and be trampled down into the dirt. It made her stomach do a slow somersault. She threw up a little and peed herself a little more, and her eyes watered. That was when she knew she couldn't complete the wizard's mission. There was death ahead for her that day. Much death, uh, much death to see at the front, and she couldn't face that. Sorry, I'll just do a little correction as I go here. And she couldn't face that. Not when her pockets were full of spy eyes, and that meant espionage, meant that the wizard was on the other side, and the side of the bastards whose old people she would starve in their high flats, and whose children she would tear from their beloved parents. The fever made her shake hard now. Her head swam, and the world pitched and yawed like a ship in heavy seas. She stood up and took a step. It was a funky, disco-dancer step. Her next step was, too. Then she was walking normally again. She reached down into her shirt between her breasts. She had on a bra again, fresh from the wizard's printer, and withdrew the inhaler he'd given her. She'd be dead in a week. She put the inhaler to her lips and drew in a deep breath while squeezing it, and then the fever was gone. The horror was gone. The field fear and cold were gone. What was left behind was a hard, frenetic grin, something that sharpened her every sense and set her feet alight like the most infectious of dance music. She ran now, flying through the trenches. The closer she got to the front, the worse it smelled. But that was okay. Bad smells were fine by her body parts. The fingertip had just been a preview. Here you could find jawbones and tongues, hands and feet curled in cocks and viscera that glistened through its dust crust. Not a problem. She planted five eyes and then crouched to let a... Sorry, frozen up PC again. Then crouched to let a trench buster sail over her head. She resisted a mad urge to reach up and stick an eye to it. 
then planted another eye, palming it and sticking it right under the nose of a gunnery sergeant who was hollering at two old women who were struggling to maneuver a gigantic multi-part weapon into position. To Valentine, the women looked old enough to be from the same tribe she'd hold water for, and they were so thin that they, that they looked like they were made of twisted-together wires. Their eyes were huge and round and showed the whites. The sergeant paid her no mind as she slipped forward, her shovel still in one hand. The trench dead-ended ahead of her, and she jigged to a side trench, but soon that too dead-ended. Dead-end after dead-end. Each got its own eye. Before she long, she was at the end of the road. No more side tunnels. She would have to turn back and try another path. There were no maps of the trenches, of course. She had another puff off her inhaler. Her stomach lurched and her knees gave way. She was back in the dirt now, and she remembered what the wizard had said about eating when she was on the inhaler or starving to death. Then she went into seizure. Her limbs thrashed. Her head shook back and forth. She banged her forehead into the frozen dirt. A gargling escaped her throat, nothing at all like words or any other human sound. When the seizure passed, and it did pass, though it felt like it never would, she shakily withdrew a fistful of butterball and sugared organ meat and shoved it in her mouth. Most of it escaped, but some of it got down her throat, and her hands were steadier in a moment, enabling her to eat more. She got to her knees, she got to her feet, she ate some more, and had another puff off the inhaler. God, oh God, she felt marvelous now. Food and the inhaler were magic together. Dead ends. Pah! Who had time to go back through the trenches? She'd be dead in five days. She jammed her fingers in the frozen dirt on the trench side and hauled herself up to the surface. In her months and months of digging in the trenches, she had never once peeked over the edge. There were things that watched for snoopy looks over the trenches, laser scanners and sentry guns. You could lose the top of your head zip-zap. Now she was on the surface. It was like the surface of the moon. Craters, hills, trenches, and great clouds of roiling smoke and dust. Nothing alive. Broken guns and things that might have been body parts. She grinned her hard grin, because there was no one else here, and so she was queen of the surface, the bloody angel of the battlefield. She fisted more sugared liver into her gob and ran. Zizz, 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 there were bullets and other materiel around her. As soon as she moved, but the world was so clear now, the gray light so pure, the domain so utterly hers, there was no chance she'd be hit by a bullet. She leapt a trench and skirted a trench, leapt and skirted, heading further and further toward the lines. She nearly tripped over a sentry gun, and then leapt on top of it as it tried to swivel around to get her in its sights, and she pasted an eye on it and laughed and leapt away. She was thinking that she should get back into a trench, and she was trying to pick one when it was decided for her. She was in mid-leap over a trench when a bullet clipped her he the heel of her shoe, and she tumbled down into the trench. She did a tremendous, jarring faceplant into the planks below, and lay stunned for a moment with her mouth filling up with blood. Sorry, fixing a typo. With her mouth filling up with blood. Her tongue throbbed, it had been bitten, and as she carefully rolled it around her mouth, she discovered that she'd knocked out one of her front teeth. Not such a pretty girl any more, but she'd be dead in less than five days. She got to her knees again and planted an eye as she looked around. A soldier was staring at her from the end of her current trench. He was saying something, but with the trenches but here the trenches boomed with artillery and zizzed with gunfire, and hearing was impossible. She drew closer to him to hear what he had to say, and she was practically upon him when she realized that he was wearing an enemy uniform. She was quick-quick, but he was quicker, and he had her arm in an iron grip before she could pull away. He said something in a language that they often spoke in the movies, back when there was a sinning across from her block of flats. She knew the words of that language. Friends, she said. 
He said something in a different language, but she didn't recognize it. Then she swi Then he switched to Hindi, but all she knew how to say in Hindi was, Love, 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 I'm in love, which was the chorus to all the songs in the Hindi movies. He shook her arm hard. He was angry with her, and the gun was in his other hand now, a soft, floppy handgun, like a length of rope, and he was gesturing at her and shouting. He was as well-fed as the wizard, and he was not much older than she. She thought it, that he didn't want to kill her, and he was angry because he was going to have to. She tried smiling at him. He scowled hard. She held out her hand to him, and she touched his arm softly, placatingly. She pointed at her pocket where the butterballs were. Very slowly, she reached into it. He watched her with suspicious eyes, that handgun trained on her now. She thought that if she had been a suicide bomber, he'd be dead now, and that made her feel a little better about the war. If this is what a soldier from the other side was like, they may have a chance after all. She drew out a butterball and took a bite of it, then offered it to the soldier. He looked like he wanted to cry. She held it to his mouth so he wouldn't have to let go of her or the gun in order to eat it. He took a small, polite bite, chewed and swallowed. She had a bite, then gave him one. They ate like that until the butterball was gone, and then she drew out another and another. She pointed to herself. Valentine, she said. He shook his head. He was the picture of moroseness. Withnil, he said. Pleased to make your acquaintance, Withnil, she said in his language, another useful phrase called from the Senate, though she suspected that she was pronouncing it all wrong. She held out her hand to shake his. He holstered his handgun and shook her hand. I have to go, Withnil. She couldn't say this in his language, but she spoke slowly and as clearly as she could. He shook his head again. She covered his hand with her. She covered his hand on her arm with her own and gave it a squeeze. To save my family, she said, I'm on a mission for your side anyway. Let me go, Withnil. She gave his hand another squeeze. Slowly, he released her arm. He was very handsome, she saw now, with a good chin and sensuous lips. She never kissed a boy, and she'd be dead in four days and a little more. Or maybe she'd be dead that afternoon, if she couldn't get back into her own trenches. She put her hand on the back of his neck and pulled his face to hers and gave him a dry, hard kiss on those pouting lips. It made her blood sing, and she gave him a hug, too, pressing her body to him. He kissed her back after a moment, surprised. His tongue